You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. If you'd like to open your Bibles up to John chapter 8, we're continuing on through John's Gospel. Nearly 20 years ago, I started working at one of the larger builders here in Melbourne. They were a national builder and uh, built in every state. My um, role in, in the business there uh, was to help them to bring some of their more upmarket new designs to the market. So I had to work out how we were going to build some of these houses. They were, uh, had some building materials we hadn't worked with before and some designs that were new to us and um, part of my role was working out how we were going to do all that and um, uh, and order the materials and the labour necessary to build these jobs. Um, I'd frequently go upstairs in the, the office to the design department to ask their manager how she envisaged this particular facade coming together or how this part of the roof connected with that part. And it became obvious after a little while that her brain worked in a different way to mine she would not necessarily be answering the question I was asking. She'd tell me what she was thinking and I'd go away uh, to work it out, thinking that she'd give me a straight answer and uh, realise that we couldn't do it the way I thought she'd told me to. So I'd go up and I'd ask her again, ask the same question again, and she'd give me a different answer the second time round. And I could do this three or four times, ask the same question and get a different answer each time. I soon realised there was a disconnect in our communication. So I learned to ask the same question in three or four or five different ways until I could figure out exactly what her intentions were for the design. Journalists do a similar thing when they're interviewing politicians, um, although usually it's because the politicians are being evasive, not because they're being unclear. The same question sometimes needs to be asked several times to get to the truth. Similar principle applies when you're the speaker and not the questioner. You have an important message to get across and so you often need to repeat it two or three or four times to ensure that people understand you. The less important bits of your message, of course, usually only get stated once and then you move on. But you want people to remember the more important bits, the, the, the point of the message. So you repeat it as many times as you feel necessary. Sometimes you repeat the same phrase. The act of repetition of the same phrase makes the point stand out and leaves the audience with something memorable. Sometimes you repeat the same idea but in different ways so that people who think in different ways will understand as well. Repetition is a great tool to help people determine what's more important and what's less important than what you're saying and to remember the right stuff. Certain words and phrases can be used to call attention to the important parts too. You'd say things like listen up or take notice or don't miss this, this is important. Using certain phrases and repetition of phrases are tools that Jesus used quite frequently. Often it's a simple message or a simple phrase, sorry, is found in the old King James Version where he says something like verily I say to you. More modern translations render that as truly I say to you or assuredly I say to you or I tell you the truth. As in 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Sometimes to increasingly emphasise the importance of what he's about to say, he'll repeat himself and he'll say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say to you, for I tell you the solemn truth. John's Gospel puts that phrase on Jesus' lips more than two dozen times. When you see the phrase verily, verily, or truly, truly, you really do need to sit up and take notice. Jesus is saying something important here. He makes important points in other ways too, of course, not just with verily, verily, but again it involves repetition. Repetition of anything in the Bible should get our attention. So if repeating something twice indicates that it's very important, what does it mean when something's repeated three times and three times in the space of only a couple of verses? Our text today sees a phrase repeated three times and uh, we'll, we'll pick that up in, from uh, John chapter 8 verse 19. Listen out and see if you can pick it. They said unto him, they said unto him, there I go in the old King James and I'm using an ESV translation, they said to him therefore, <laughs> where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father, if you knew me you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you're from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, verse 30, many believed in Him. Did you catch it? Sounds like an important and a disturbing warning. You will die in your sin, he cautions, three times. Nobody wants to be told that. I'm not that bad, we think. Sure, I make a few mistakes. I haven't always been completely truthful, but I'm not a bad person. Why would I die in my sin? Well, there are a number of reasons why that could be our fate. None of us are immune to that. No more than the Pharisees that Jesus issued the warning to originally are immune to them. Now lots of people want to co-opt Jesus to their cause. doesn't matter if they're Christians or not. Jesus can make a good mascot to push your agenda. Jesus, of course, was one of the first ones to do that. He had plans for Jesus that weren't aligned with what Jesus came to do. Judas wanted Jesus to rise up 
<coughs> excuse me, and overthrow the hated Romans and lead the Jewish people to freedom and victory. The end result of this clash of agendas, we know, was the suicide of Judas and the crucifixion of Jesus. And non-Christians today like to adopt Jesus to promote their cause too. The LGBTQ etc. lobby likes to tell you that Jesus loves everyone and therefore he wouldn't condemn them for their lifestyle. Love is love and Jesus is love, therefore Jesus must approve of same-sex marriage. The revered Mahatma Gandhi found some of his inspiration in the Gospels and in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi was raised a Hindu and he remained a Hindu all his life, but he was happy to adopt enough of Jesus to promote his agenda. Christians are not averse to using Jesus for their purposes either. Liberal, left-wing Christians like to use Jesus to promote their agendas as well. Feeding the poor and fighting for the freedom of the oppressed are all good and they're all important and they're all necessary things to do. In fact, that's one of the things that Jesus came to do himself. He said in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. To Luke 4, 18 and 19. He declared that right at the very beginning of his ministry. The Bible frequently tells us to care for those less fortunate than us, to entertain strangers, to visit those in prison, to support the widow. They're all good things. They're all necessary things for Christians to do. But don't mistake good works for the gospel. It should be the outworking of the gospel. But good works in and of themselves are not a passport to heaven. They're not the entrance to eternal bliss. No matter how loudly we proclaim that this is what Jesus wants from us. Conservative Christians too can do this. Especially in the USA. They use their numbers to impose their moral agenda on society. In Jesus' name of course. For a number of years, there was an organisation over there called the Moral Majority that had the goal of influencing politics and shaping the policies of the White House and the various branches of government. And moral behaviour is not a bad thing. If it wasn't for our willingness to obey laws that put limits on acceptable behaviour and that punish disobedience, society would be a daily war zone and none of us would be safe. But good behaviour is not the gospel either. You can be the best behaved, most law-abiding person on the planet and yet still have a heart so hard that you'll die in your sin. The Pharisees were exhibit A. No one was more moral than the Pharisees. No one was more careful to obey the law than them. But Jesus warned Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a frighteningly high standard. I would bet there's probably not one of us here today who could say our righteousness, our behaviour, exceeds that of the Pharisees. Yet Jesus tells us 
that our righteousness must exceed theirs if we have any hope of entering heaven. So what level of righteousness is enough? How do we know if we've achieved that? Elsewhere, Jesus makes it pretty easy for us to work out how much is enough. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There you go. That's the standard. Now you know what your target for righteousness is. Perfection. So it seems everyone has an agenda. Everyone wants to wave the banner of Jesus over their agenda to give their cause legitimacy. It doesn't work that way. Jesus won't be sucked into parroting your favourite slogan. He won't be used to promote any agenda but his own. Jesus Christ is no one's puppet. And those who try to use him as their mouthpiece are ultimately destined to failure. And worse, they're destined to die in their sin. Worldly agendas aren't the only thing that will condemn us to die in our sin. In fact, our worldly agendas are merely an outworking of this next problem. Worldliness and self-righteousness are a consequence of unbelief. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This, in fact, is the root of all our problems. It's the root of corruption and violence and greed and exploitation and war and poverty and sickness and every other bad thing you can imagine. But it's funny, people don't like to hear about judgment and condemnation for their unbelief. They like to imagine that sin and rebellion and unbelief won't have any serious consequences. But unbelief has already had tragic consequences and it will continue to bring destruction long after this life is over. But that's not a popular idea. About a year or so ago, I caught up with an old friend of the party. For several years, we'd both been part of the same church until our lives took different directions. We hadn't seen each other in several years since and at the party... He told me that he was becoming increasingly convinced of the doctrine of universalism. For those who don't know, universalism is, put simply, the belief that in the end everyone gets saved and goes to heaven. There's no hell, there's no eternal punishment, there's no separation from God. I was uh, a bit shocked, a bit surprised, taken aback by this. I wanted to say, but unfortunately I didn't get the chance have you never read the Bible? Have you never listened to what Jesus said? Have you ignored all the red letter parts of your Bible? Do you really think that Jesus said repeatedly, you can't come where I'm going and you will die in your sins? Did he say that just to make conversation? I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to hear statements like that come from someone who isn't a Christian or someone who'd never read the Bible. After all, they have no reason to know or to believe what Jesus said. But for someone who was an elder in the church, someone who preached the word, someone who led Bible studies in his home on a regular basis, it left me shocked. 
maybe I shouldn't have been. The very first lie you'd recall came from the lips of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you will die? You surely won't die, he said. It's a lie that's infected all of humanity ever since. For God really did say, you will die. You bet he did. And God means what he says. To disbelieve that is to reject God. And sin, the sin of rejecting God, of unbelief, has consequences. And it must be that way. If God is holy, if he is perfect and pure, he must punish sin. Firstly, he must do it because he said he would. And if he doesn't, he's a liar. But also he must punish sin because sin spoils the perfection of his creation. Think about it. At heart, no matter how nice you want to be towards others, no matter how gracious you imagine yourself to be, you too want sin to be punished. You probably want it to be punished in other people, not yourself, but you too want sin to be punished. You might be prepared to give someone the benefit of the doubt as long as it doesn't affect you directly. What if the bad guy breaks into your house and steals all the jewellery that your mother left to you with her dying breath? What if that same bad guy attacks your wife and kills your children? Will you be so generous and loving towards him after that? Or will you demand justice and punishment? Should scammers and thieves and pedophiles and murderers be allowed to walk around in society freely and unpunished? I'm sure you would say no. But if God were to turn a blind eye to sin and rebellion and unbelief, that's exactly what we would have to look forward to in the afterlife, in the new heaven and the new earth. What makes you think that our sinful nature and rebelliousness will stop just because our bodies die? For sin, unbelief, goes much deeper than the body. So the afterlife won't be that blissful utopia that you're looking forward to to escape the pain and suffering and, and violence of this world. Rather, it would be as corrupt and as brutal and as nasty as this life can often be. So God must punish sin. But God also has a solution. How can he show righteousness, punishing sin, but at the same time show mercy to those same sinners? We'll get to that shortly. I talked last week about all the excuses people make who don't want to believe Jesus and all the excuses they make to justify their unbelief. So I won't go over that territory again. That's available on our podcast or website if you want to catch up with it. But we see in this response of the Pharisees to every statement Jesus makes, and especially to this one, we see excuses. I told you that you would die in your sins, Jesus said in verse 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Who are you? What kind of question is that? Surely you'd have to work hard 
to not follow what Jesus has been telling them all along about who he is. Really, they knew what Jesus had been claiming about himself. They knew that he claimed to be God. It's what got them so angry, they insisted on seeing him killed. But in spite of all of his claims, in spite of all of his miracles, in spite of how perfectly Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies that they knew by heart, they still had the gall to play dumb. Who are you? As I said last week, unbelief will never run out of objections and will never have sufficient proof. That's the deceptive power of willful unbelief. It will eventually close our ears to the truth, the only truth that can save us from eternal destruction. Jesus said in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And as he was saying these things, verse 30 tells us, many believed in him. We know from the Gospels and from the historical record that most of the people who believed in him during his ministry turned their back on him at the end. Some of them would realise they'd been terribly mistaken. They would come back to him later on. The crucifixion. The resurrection and the day of Pentecost changed everything. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believed in him and were born again, born from above. On that day, thousands realised exactly what Jesus had been claiming about himself all along. And thousands were born from above, dressed in clean clothes, to use biblical language, and set free from their sins. Of course, that raises the question of why God would forgive these unbelieving hordes who had so recently been screaming for Jesus to be crucified. How can God show his righteousness, punishing sin, but at the same time show mercy to them, show mercy to us? There seems to be an insurmountable problem here. A perfect God who cannot even look on sin invites those very same sinners to come to him. The problem from our side, of course, is that there's an unbridgeable chasm between Jesus Christ and those of us in the world. You are from below, I am from above, Jesus said. You are of this world, I am not of this world. They and we possess a nature that is incompatible with the nature of Jesus Christ and incompatible with the qualities of the afterlife. Their origin and our origin and therefore our destiny is fixed in this world. Unless something happens to change us, our path can only lead from earthly birth through earthly life with all the sin that clings to us on the way through to an earthly death still with that sin, sin clinging to us. There's only one solution. Jesus told Nicodemus about it back in John chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's Jesus repeating again, listen up, Nicodemus, this is important. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally that is born from above, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's our problem. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There is our hope. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. That's what needs to happen to those of us who are in the world. We need to be born from above. Then we will have the same sort of nature that Jesus Christ has. Then we'll be able to survive in the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus is preparing for us, for those who believe in him. The Bible often uses the imagery of dirty clothes and clean clothes to give us a simple picture of what sin and righteousness looks like. The book of Zechariah in chapter 3 provides an example. It tells us now Joshua the high priest was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel spoke up to those standing all around, remove his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, I have freely forgiven your iniquity and I will dress you in clean, fine linen. Without these clean clothes, we're not fit to enter the pristine world of the new heaven and the new earth. But these clean clothes are not something we can put on ourselves doesn't matter how hard we try to avoid sin. It's something that the Lord himself must do for us. This is a picture of what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about. This is what it looks like to be born from above. And the first step to receiving those clean clothes is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Unless you believe that I am he, You will die in your sin. Have you believed? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, the consequences are inescapable. You will die in your sins. There's no alternative. There's no way out. There's no other option. Whether you like it or not, Jesus has told us in unmistakable terms that that's our destiny. There will be no sin, no death in the new heaven and the earth, new earth. So if you die in your sin, you are just not fit to survive there, to live there. Now, I don't want you to build a doctrine on this imagery, but the filthy clothes and the clean clothes is a bit helpful to give us uh, some pictures, I think. So I want to continue with that for just a moment longer. If your coffin, if when your coffin is opened up, It reveals your body is still clad in those filthy clothes that look like you've been mucking out a septic tank by hand. If your body is still clad in those filthy clothes, still wrapped in your sin, then it will be too late then to cry out for a change of clothes. Now is the time to turn to him for the clean garments that you need to be dressed in when you die. That's Jesus' warning to all of us, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is precisely who he claims to be. Who are you? The Pharisees asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus said. 
And what is it he's been telling them? He's been telling them that he is the uncreated creator of the universe. That he is the son of God. That he is the perfect image of the father. That he is God himself who took on human flesh and came to earth to live a perfect life and to die an unjust death to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Then on the third day he rose again from the dead showing that the payment was accepted. His death was sufficient to pay for the sin of every person who would turn from their sin and believe in him. But Jesus has a very different agenda to this world. And he calls you and I to get on board with his agenda. Do you really imagine that you can make the God of the universe conform to your desires, your wants, your agenda? I don't think so. So Jesus has a warning for us and he has an encouragement for us. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless, unless. But what if you do believe? What if you do turn to him? Then it follows that you will not die in your sin. Then when your coffin is opened up, instead of filthy rags, it will reveal gleaming white perfectly clean garments and those garments are nothing other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ granted to everyone who would put their trust in him garments that will clothe every person who abandons their own agenda to believe that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be he is both saviour And he is Lord. That means that he is in charge. Not any of us. This offer of clean white clothes, this offer to take away all of our sin, is available for free. Just believe. Then, when you believe, your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Then you will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Then you will not die in your sin. Now it's all thanks to Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.